Let's, uh, let's take a moment and just pray. Father, thank you for you, your invitation to have us rest. Uh, your invitation not just to save us from hell, but to actually adopt us into your family. Father, thank you that you want to make us your kids, not just your royal subject or your saved sinners. We are not mere sinners saved by grace. We are now royalty, having been adopted into everything that you own, having become joint heirs with Christ, because you were willing to kill your only begotten son so that we could then live. Uh, we are about, Lord, to embark on a season that reminds us that Emmanuel has come as promised in the Old Testament. God has been among us physically, and you are today spiritually among us. You are in our hearts. You are in this room speaking to those who know you and those who do not. And it is my prayer this morning that you would clearly speak to all of us, whether we're in this room or watching on the internet, that not only our hearts will be changed and our destiny will be changed, but our lives will be changed as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are going to jump right back into our text this morning in Ruth chapter 1. Uh, actually, let me, let's just do that. Verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were, Ephratite, uh, they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. As uh, we spent our time in those verses last couple weeks, um, I pointed out, and I want to remind you, that this is what it looks like to run from God when you should repent. This is what that looks like. As Spurgeon said, God will not allow his children to succeed at sinning. He won't allow that. And his unwillingness to repent cost Elimelech's family, his wife, and his sons deeply. Verses 3 to 5 tell us what happened. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons then married Moabite women, which, by the way, was a sin as well. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other, named, uh, and other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, Solomon said this, People who conceal their sin will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they'll receive mercy. Too often, Elimelech, or like Elimelech, we know we are not spiritually where we need to be. We know that God is calling us back into repentance. What are you doing? Now, I want to be clear this morning that it's different with us than it was under the Old Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God told them, if you disobey me and you don't repent when I call you to repent, I'm going to send a famine. Your children will die. Your women will not have healthy childbirth. Lots of stuff is going to happen. But if you repent, I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive your sin and I'll heal your land. We know that from a later prophecy, Chronicles. It's really important you understand that under the Old Covenant, he's talking about royal subjects of the King of Kings. But we're the adopted children of God and it's significantly different because God has given you the Holy Spirit living within you 
to guide you and direct you. And you know when you're out of fellowship with God because he tells you that. But just like Elimelech, who clearly saw outwardly and inwardly that he wasn't where he needed to be, he tries to outrun God's discipline. And we often do the same thing. We actually go, oh, I shouldn't be where I am. I feel empty. I'm not, I don't have the peace that comes with walking in the Spirit. I don't have the joy that comes with walking in the Spirit. What I need is more food. What I need is more worship. I need more religion. I need more alcohol. Whatever you fill that thing with that's not God, it's just like this. You see, Elimelech chose food over fellowship with God. You see, all God wants, all God wants, amen, all God wants is, is fellowship. He wants fellowship with us. But we want the stuff that comes with fellowship without the surrender. That's the difficulty that was faced by Old Covenant saints as well as New Covenant saints. Before we move on into this morning's text, I want to beg of you this morning, don't wait for God to allow you to experience the consequences of your pride, of your sin. Please. You see, you're going to learn the lessons of life that God wants you to learn one of two ways. By listening to the wisdom of others, maybe by preachers or your spouse or the Word of God or the Holy Spirit within you. Don't do that. Or you're going to learn by consequences. God is not going to allow you not to be trained. That's not how this works. He's a loving dad. He's a daddy. And you know, there are times when you were raising your kids and are probably raising your grandkids. You look at them and you go, don't do that. And you tell them, don't do that. But they do it anyway. It's like watching a slow train wreck. God allows slow train wrecks. Because while the trains are crashing, there's a tendency for us to say, oops, I'm in trouble. Save me. You don't have to need saving. Just don't be an idiot. Uh, last week, as we met with Josh, or a couple weeks ago, as we met with Josh Ferguson, we, uh, I, I shared Wednesday night that the elders met with Josh and Allie, and uh, we went around the circle, and we gave him a word. We've been praying for a month or two on what to share with them, and we gave a word of encouragement, and I think my favorite of the evening was, was Pastor Jeff. He looked at Josh, and he says, I have one thing. Everybody else is, is sharing you great stuff, but I got one thing. Don't be an idiot. Okay? I want to be clear. It's not struggling in your relationship with God if you're having an affair. That's not struggling. That's conceding. If you're putting heroin in your veins, that's not struggling. That's conceding. Struggling is wanting to do something that makes you feel better. Struggling is feeling the magnetic pull to your flesh. Not struggling is giving in all the time. And even in the church, Satan has got us to believe that giving in is struggling, and that is not struggling. And Limelech moved his family, fully aware that God's judgment was on Bethlehem, into the enemy's camp. That's not struggling with God. That's conceding to the enemy. And, and I understand that we all fall. I do. I get it. I fall too. I'm not standing up here as a perfect man. You can ask my wife, who will protect me at all costs, right? Thank you. We, we, we do. But struggling is what happened to Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days with temptation. We're very used to giving in. And the problem with giving in is it has consequences. It does have consequences. And that's what happened here. And I am 
I want to finish last week's message and that by saying this. You don't have to have those consequences. Just don't be an idiot. Stop. And if you're in the middle of that right now, repent. Turn around. Don't just feel sorry. The, the other thing that Satan does is he gets us to think that repentance is feeling bad about what we're doing. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I'm not going to do it anymore, even if it kills me not to do it, even if I'm lonely. Even if I'm lonely, I will not go there ever again. I'm going to turn around. Well, pastor, I don't know how to do that. That's why we have fellowship. That's why you have, uh, we get in small groups. That's why you make relationships. We need each other. We need to confess our sin to each other. I'm not saying to the whole church. I don't want to know all your sin. You don't want to know all my sin, but there's a few people in this church that do need to know my sin. Why? Because then they watch me. That's wisdom. Wisdom says, don't judge me. Wisdom doesn't say, don't judge me. Wisdom says, I need you and you to absolutely be judging me all the time. That's wisdom. I, I've been sharing with our kids that the world says that uh, independence is maturity. No, it's not. Maturity is realizing you need interdependence. That's ultimate maturity, is knowing you need somebody to help you and escort you and guide you. And that's why we have the church. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. And I want this morning, I'm pleading with you, if you are living in a state where you are not in fellowship with God, or you're not where you need to be, and you know that, don't wait another day. It doesn't have to get worse. Just thank Him for His grace. You don't even have to spend three weeks in confessionals. You don't have to do that. You don't have to find, you don't have to cry. You don't have to find the Michael W. Smith that's going to make you weep, or a Matt Redmond song that ages me. You don't have to find, you, you don't have to poke yourself with a needle to prove your sincerity. If you know you're not where you need to be and you know that he is willing to forgive you, run to him. Don't leave Bethlehem and try to outrun the consequences of your sins. Stay in Bethlehem, look at the king and go, I know I'm starving for my own causes. I, I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Make it right. Stop it. If you're addicted to something that's killing you, get help for your fleshly addiction. It does become addictive. But you can immediately be in fellowship with God again. And that's what he wants for you. He does not want you to make more money. He wants you fellowshipping with him. He does not want you more successful. He wants you fellowshipping with him. He does not want this church bigger, better attended. He wants those of us who are serious in fellowship with him. That's what he wants. Men, he doesn't want your kids growing up in a Christian home without a dad who's spiritually serious. Women, he does not want your kids growing up, whatever. I'm going to stop. You get it. Please, turn around. Because the consequences are soon following if you don't. It's not a threat. It's what parents do. If you let your kids steal a cookie every night, at some point you're going to come to the realization that it's not cute at 17 for your kid to be a thief. Because at 25, they'll just be a bigger thief. And at 35, they'll be a bigger thief. At some point, if you love your kids, you're willing to go to war over that issue with them. Because you love them. Right? That's what's wrong with our culture. We got rich kids who've never done anything, who have no idea of consequences, and they're not thinking anymore. They're not thinking. Give you a case in point. On both ends of the spectrum, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, are being called by one group or the other, Hitler. That's because nobody has any idea who Hitler really was or they haven't read on him. Neither of those groups have killed six million people simply because of their DNA. We're askew. And it's creeping into the church. Please. 
I would be amiss if we didn't stop for a second and give you a chance to talk to your father. Because I'm that serious about this. So let's do that. We're just going to take a quiet moment. And for those of you visiting, just put up with us. You can do this in your home if you're watching. But will you just take a moment and talk with your dad? He knows where you are. You might as well be honest with him. If you're in fellowship, thank him. Thank him for where you're at and ask him for strength that you won't turn around. Temptation comes every day. If you're not, would you just confess your sin? Thank him for his grace that he's already spread. You're already pure and holy before him, but you can do life better. Let's let's take 30 seconds, and I'm going to be quiet, and it's going to be really quiet in here. Lord, I want to thank you for your mercy. Your mercy means that you will not rain fire down from heaven, yet we deserve it. But I want to thank you for your grace, which means we get what we don't deserve, and that's peace and joy and hope. I know, Lord, that in this room and on the Internet, there are many, many who know you, who are your children, but they're living like a limelight in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing. Father God, may we find no satisfaction in the wrong thing and the wrong place. May we find our satisfaction in you alone. We love you. We don't always like you, but we trust you. Help us trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Unfortunately for Naomi, who was Elimelech's widow, she in my opinion, duplicates his sin by not repenting herself. I've already pointed out that after her husband dies, she's left alone with two sons. And instead of taking those Jewish boys and running back to the protection and provision of the Holy Land by her holy king, she stays and actually doubles down on their sin by marrying off her two Jewish boys to two Moabitess women. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I know that you're thinking, well, it turns out well, because if she doesn't marry those boys off, we don't have Ruth. You know, that's the amazing thing about our God. He takes a judge like Samson, who lives many, many years, decades of his life, in total selfishness and sinfulness, and yet at the end, God calls him a man of righteousness. It's an amazing thing that God will use our sin and still glorify himself. Look at Jonah. We can be in absolute rebellion, and it will not thwart God's will. I don't care what your Baptist preacher told you. You are not plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. You are invitation A, but his plan will be accomplished through you, whether you're sinful or not. He's not waiting for you to fix his plan. He's not waiting for us to get it right so then he can do his thing in the world. It is not the church's fault that the world is screwed up. It's the church's fault that the church is screwed up. That's the thing that it's affecting. It is not your neighbor's fault that your family is a mess. It's your fault your family's a mess. And we like to find somebody else to blame. The reason that our culture is so hateful today is not because we have a president that knows how to tweet. It's because too many people have some Twitter accounts. It's just as hateful from every end. And the truth is, at some point, we have to come to terms with that. And Naomi doesn't. 
Look at verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab, so she's still living there, that the Lord had blessed his people in Judea, uh, Judah by giving them good crops again. So for those of you who doubted last week that it's a direct correlation, she sees it as a direct correlation. Oh, the Jewish nation is being blessed again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law, who's all that's left because her boys and her husband have died. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law get ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out to the place where she, had been, uh, where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So basically, Ruth hears that the blessing of the Lord has returned to her homeland, where she and her husband had run, when famine hit. Now, alone with her daughters-in-law, she hears that, that the food is there, which is her main desire, food. And I'm going to add to this fellowship with her own kind, not fellowship with God, we have no idea. In fact, I'm going to try to make the point this morning, and some of you may disagree, but I'm going to try to make the point this morning that she's pretty hateful towards God. She blames him for all the trouble in her life. And she gets in her little Maserati, and her and her daughters-in-law head back to the land of Judah on that 50-mile trek. Just an observation. I made the case last week that this famine in the Holy Land represented God disciplining his children for the rebellion against him. And as he promised, he kept his word in his discipline of them. I want you to notice in this text, though, that God's blessing does not return to all Jews all over the place. It returns to the place of his, his discipline as well. Um, if you run away from God's discipline, you will also miss his blessing. Just a side note. If you run away so that you don't get in trouble for the sins you've been committing, just so you know, God wants to visit you and bless you and give you peace again, but you're going to miss all that for what's coming. And that's part of the story. I want to remind you that this is how God deals with his kids. Some of us in this room are struggling with the concept that God disciplines his kids, and yet Hebrews chapter 12 says this, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? I want you to circle in your mind the word encouraging. This is supposed to be good news. God said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, for he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Nobody wants to be punished, but to be punished means that God's personally invested in you. So that's why it's an encouragement. As you endure, verse 7, this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you're illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Well, that isn't very nice. Yes, it is. You did it with your kids. Why did you train your three-year-old not to lie? Because you don't want a 35-year-old lying. It's loving. But it's not enjoyable. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Nobody wants to be spanked. Being spanked means that you, but being spanked means that you have a daddy in heaven who's growing you up. And we don't like to wrap our minds around that. Elimelech and now Ruth wanted no part of God's discipline. They were, by effect, his rebellious birth DNA children. They were angry, 
and they were trying to outrun it. And their experience in Moab didn't change that for, for, for youth from a human perspective. They were successful because their goal was food and not fellowship with God. Let me be clear. What they wanted, they got. They wanted food, they got food. In fact, they got success as far as we know. It wasn't hard for her to marry her boys off. They liked the land. This is Lot, who didn't necessarily participate in the sins of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he sure liked being there. He enjoyed being around that. Those people are kind of fun. What was it Billy Joel said? I'd rather die with the sinners than live with the saints, for the sinners are much more fun. I could sing it because you're already singing it in your brain. But the truth is, that's the mindset, and that's what's going on here. And as a result, she now finds herself alone. But now, re- re- realizing she's alone, a Jew in Moab, she's driven home. She's returning to her home where she knew people, family, and friends. Let me be clear. She left with her husband because she wanted food more than fellowship with God. She's returning to the Holy Land, not because she wants fellowship with God. We have no recollection of that. We have no knowledge of that. But we do know that she's lonely, so she's going back to the right place, but for the wrong reasons. You see, repentance isn't just doing the right thing or saying the right thing. It's doing it for the right reasons. Whenever a man gets caught or a woman gets caught in in an inappropriate relationship, they feel sadness. Case in point, Tiger Woods. He had 21, at least, inappropriate relationships. And this is a guy who's a Buddhist who doesn't believe in right and wrong. Absolutely doesn't believe it. But when he looked at his uh, model wife and she took a bat to him, I assure you he believed in right and wrong. You can deny it, you can pretend it doesn't exist, but it does exist. And the truth is that you reap the whirlwind of sin upon yourself, and that's what's happening here. She's returning, but actually I don't believe for the right reasons. She wanted to be near family and friends, fellowship with people she liked, not where she could restore fellowship with her God. Why do I say that? Because it never even infers that she does that. Ruth didn't much like, actually, I'm going to make the case now, Ruth didn't, or Naomi didn't much like how God was running her universe, let alone his country, let alone her life. She didn't like how God was running her life. Look at verse 8. On the way, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's home. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Oh, she loves God. Let's keep reading. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Verse 10. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your, uh, to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me. Now, this is the, you want to hear her heart? This is it. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Despite running from God, when God was trying to get their attention and get them to run back, 
despite running to the enemies of God for protection and provision from God's discipline that was supposed to draw you back, despite marrying her sons off to Moabite women in clear violation of God's command, Naomi still says, God has raised his fist against me. She actually tells her daughters-in-law. Now, I want you to understand what's being said here because we're reading the shortened version. But I want you to understand what she's saying to her daughters that are, you need to go back to your homeland and marry those people. You need to live with them because my God, the God of Israel, he is not nice to me and you don't want to be a part of that. It would be better for you to go with those gods. It would be better for you to go back to your own people. She tells her daughters-in-law, despite their desire to go with her to her home, to go back to their own homes and moms, find their husbands, live their lives, because it will be better for them. Because Naomi is completely absorbed with your experience on this planet as it relates to children and marriage and happiness and personal things than it is a right relationship with the only living God. Let me say it another way. Naomi is saying, my God is mean. Go back to your own people, even though, they, uh, even though they are my God's enemies. You'll have a better life if you don't have contact with me or the God who's judging you. Verse 14. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. That's what it looks like when you convince somebody that your God isn't worth trusting, let alone following. Two daughters, this is what it looks like when you convince your kids to not go to your God and your people. That's what it looks like. Your walk with God, my walk with God, despite us going, don't judge me, and it's not personal, we like to divert our, our, our own personal struggles, our own personal things away from ourselves. We don't like to say, follow me. Paul, Paul actually says in the New Testament, I want you to follow me like I follow Jesus. He actually uses the word imitate. Imitate my life. If you don't know what God wants from you, you imitate me, and I'm going to imitate God. We look at that and we go, man, that's kind of arrogant. You know what it is? It's honest. Our lives should be lived in such a way that people want to know the God that we serve. Why is he worthy of your life? Why would you still trust him when there's a famine in the land? Why would you even endure blah, 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 whatever it is? Why would you, with cancer, still trust God? People should look at our lives and want the God that we serve, or at least to find out why we're crazy. How we live, not just how we say. We have turned evangelism into a conversation. Evangelism is a lifestyle. When people who are not saved walk into your home, they should smell the kingdom. When people see your marriage, they should see two children of royalty walking with God together. They shouldn't see normal people who just happen to have a fish on their bumper. This is a completely different life. How you live, how you interact with your heavenly daddy, your personal relationship with him affects those around you and whether or not they're going to respond to him. In other words, if you don't trust him, why should anybody else? If we as the body of Christ are panicked over politics, why do they not look at us like another political action team? If we are just as upset with people that cut us off in traffic or immoral people, if we just scream our rhetoric on Facebook, why would anybody want to visit our church? If we're willing to rip people off in business because that's business, like the rest of the world rips people off in business, why would anybody want to know the God that you say runs your business? 
If we prep for the end of the world in a panicked state, like those who don't know the king of the world, why would they join us in our worship of the king of kings? If our Facebook rhetoric is just as hateful and just as argumentative and just as unkind as the hopeless and hopeless as the world, why should they care to visit your church outside of a special baptism or any other time? Why would they want what we have when we aren't acting any different than the lost? Which is why Orpha went home. Oh, I get it. It's just a different way of living. Okay, then maybe I don't need your people. Can you imagine? Could you imagine if Naomi said, I've been wrong. My husband was wrong. And God has dealt harshly with us, but he's gracious and merciful. Do you remember what David said after the whole Bathsheba incident and Uriah incident? I have sinned against you and you alone. That's repentance. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Please. I love you. I, I want to live for you. I'm going to make the case in First and Second Samuel that Samuel was probably more religious and more moral in all of his screw-up than David was. And yet David was a man after God's own heart, not necessarily because of his behavior alone, but because of what repentance looks like. You see, repentance isn't being sorry for your sin or sorry that you're about to lose your throne. It's actually realizing that you have grieved the heart of God and what he has is better. It's courage. What Nahomi does here is nuts. Even in the Old Testament, the only way to salvation was through the God of the Jews. There, there was no other way to be saved. And she actually, she actually is so self-absorbed, she sends Orpah back to go to hell. That's incredible. Because all Naomi cared about was her loneliness and how harshly God was treating her. Verse 14. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. So Orpah takes off. And verse 15, look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. What's the next line? And what does she say? I'll read it again. Your sister-in-law, honey, has gone back to her people and to their gods. You should do the same. Wow. Wow. Now, for those of you who want to just say, look, that's just Old Testament talk. These are God's people. These are his chosen nation. He was clear in saying that you're going to bring a blessing to the nations of the world just by who you are. All you've got to do is stay close in your relationship with me. She actually tells her first daughter to go home and convinces her, and then her second daughter tries to convince her and even invokes her gods. Go back to your gods. You don't want my gods. My God is mean. You should do what your sister-in-law did. Does your relationship with God and the resulting lifestyle you live make people want to walk towards your God or away from Him? You see, we forgot that my personal relationship with God is not personal. It's a statement. How we react to a president we think is wicked tells us tells the world who we really find peace and comfort and safety in. How we react to a gay agenda or an immoral agenda tells the world whether or not we're confident in a God who overcomes immorality through the blood of the cross. How we react to people who are sinful 
tells people whether or not we believe that our task is to offer salvation to said people. If our rhetoric is so hateful that we run off the people that are supposed to be coming for Jesus, do we really even care about their souls? I'm making the case that Ruth didn't care, or that Naomi didn't care about Ruth or Orpha's soul. She cared about getting back to her people and not being alone. She spends time convincing her Moabitess daughters not to go back and be around her gods. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. In case you're not clear, I'm making the case. Naomi was just lonely and no longer was food her issue, now it was loneliness. So she's going back to her people. Ruth. Ruth is going back to her God. I'm in. You want to know what that looks like? Here's another example in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God, here's the question, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you today. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is, is able to save us. He will rescue us from your, your power, your majesty. But this, this is their heart. But even if he does not, even if we die today in your silly little fire, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. That's what it looks like when you put your hope and trust and future and life in the hands of Jehovah. Just like what Ruth said. Don't ask me to leave you, Naomi, or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, Mom. And your gods that you say is mean to you and has treated you harshly, that you say if I go with you is going to treat me harshly, he's my God. I choose him. In fact, wherever you die, even if it's tomorrow on the road, I'll die. And there on the road where your God may kill me, I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely. Okay? That's not what we hear today. We hear today all the time. Swear to God. That's like, I swear to God I'm taking you to McDonald's after church today. It's, it's taking God's name in vain. Drives me nuts. I hope it drives you nuts. Don't do that. But this is a woman saying, I swear to God. And may he punish me severely if I allow anything but death to ever separate me and you. That's what it looks like to put your hope, trust, life, future, everything in God's hands. 
but we're not done. Because this is what it looks like to seek food from the world, friendship from the world, rather than fellowship with God. Verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Doesn't say she was happy. Doesn't say she was relieved. Doesn't say she went into her prayer closet and said, thank you, God, for my daughter coming with me. It just says she shut up. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the woman asked? Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Not my husband, not our sin, but the Almighty. She's not happy with God, and here's why. Listen to why she feels that her life is a mess. Verse 21. I went away full. (laughs) What? But the Lord has brought me home empty. So now you know her value system. I want a husband, and I want food. That's all I ask from God. I don't want intimacy with you. I don't want fellowship with you. I want the freedom to do my own thing or at least allow my husband to do his own thing. That's full. That's how she defines a full life. You took me away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned to Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth the young Moabite woman, they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Why would anybody want to worship Naomi's God? She's a hateful, mean, arbitrary, angry deity who takes joy in ruining the lives of women. King David said this of that God, No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced. But disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. So now my question for you. How do you see God? Like Naomi? Or like David? Who, by the way, had his own pile of poop that he created. Which one of them represents your point of view? There's not a person in this room who wouldn't say David. So let's not answer the question. Let's answer through our life in the last seven days. What did you write on Facebook? Who would you tell off? How would you react when you watched the news and Trump tweeted again? Or Hillary's book sold another 50 copies. How'd you react? Oh, she makes me so mad. Last Sunday when Dak was the only one who played football for the Dallas Cowboys. What's your value system? What's your value system? You see, we're really good in the church of answering what our value system is. You're my God, you know. Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. We're good at those words. But do we live them? You realize that the Jews during the time of the judges, which is the time this is found, the Jews during the time of the judges, they still sacrificed. They still offered, they still partied at festivals. 
They did all the stuff Jews were supposed to do except one. Love him. They didn't obey him. God said, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Yep, Naomi went back to Bethlehem. Good for her. What God wanted was her heart. It's good for you to be conservative politically. It's good to be for you to be a good husband and a good wife. It's good for you to make enough money to feed your family. It's good for you to give to the Red Cross, or I would advise the Salvation Army, or Samaritan's Purse. It's good for you to do those things. It's good for you to serve at the Pregnancy Help Center. It's good for you to be involved in a Sunday school class. But if you do all those things, and you don't believe in God, and I mean really, really believe, not just here, but in here, and I say that because there's a lot of time in here that your skin's going to tell you to run. C.S. Lewis talked about it. God is good, but he's not safe. Well, I want him safe too. We sang a song this morning, and in the middle of that song, Chad had uh, Melinda read a scripture. Or no, that was earlier. But there was a scripture in the rest song. It's just on the screen, right? And it says that, talks about those who have taken their rest. That's not talking about believers. That's talking about dead believers. They've entered the rest. You see, this is hard. This is hard. Because my flesh wants a godly government. My flesh wants my kids to grow up in a place that there's no persecution. And my flesh does not want North Korea with nuke-tipped bombs heading towards Lufkin. My flesh wants Iran to do what Iran does and leave us alone. My flesh wants to have a full church with a filled budget and we're just going to enjoy life together. But that is not what any of us were called to. We were called to live out faith when our flesh tells us to freak. Now you know. So who are you? Ruth? Orpah? Naomi? Elimelech? Which one are you? Father God, make us like Ruth. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are, uh, Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you'd like to stay and pray, you may. Uh, if you'd like to have us uh, elders pray for you, we'd be glad to do that. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, Julie and I would love to shake your hand. She'll be up here, and I'll join you in a moment.